Well, good morning, good morning again. Welcome to The Grove and welcome to everybody who is with us online. We are so glad again that you're with us this morning. We are in week three of a sermon series all about prayer. Now, the reason that we are starting this year talking about prayer is we think that if there was one practice, one habit, one activity that people of faith that Christians should engage in, kind of the most foundational, the most fundamental, the most important, would be prayer. The problem is, is that of all of the habits, the patterns, the actions that we as Christians could engage in, prayer oftentimes feels the most distant, the most out of reach, kind of the hardest to understand, to wrap our arms around, to feel like we're any good at it. And so the last couple of weeks, we've kind of been talking about what this looks like. We've kind of begun the journey to kind of approach prayer, unpack prayer a little bit. And the reason that we want to keep talking about it is because ultimately we want to figure out how to pray. This is kind of one of the requests that the disciples made of Jesus. It's kind of the only one that really gets captured in the gospels that they say, Lord, teach us how to pray. And I think that for many of us, if we could kind of have any one question about faith answered, for many of us, in terms of like application, it would be, okay, how do, we, how do I pray so that prayer works or it makes a difference or I see some tangible change when I pray? Because for many of us, there can be at times a frustration with prayer, either that we're not good at it or we don't know how to do it or it doesn't seem to be working or there seems to be a futility with prayer. It's like I pray, but I don't really feel like anything's changing. It's like, Lord, and then we kind of look around and everything still seems to be the same. And so, okay, well, maybe, maybe mine hit the ceiling and came back down. I don't really know why mine's not working, but other people seem to get what they want and why am I not getting what I want? And so we can oftentimes go round and round. And then the other thing that happens to us is we, we see other people and it's like, God, why are they good at prayer and why am I, why am I not? Like we think that maybe there's like some character defect like it's like this kind of innate thing that you're born into. Like some people are just prayer warriors and the rest of us, we're just not. And so we just kind of give up. And we don't want you to give up. We want you to have confidence to approach God in prayer. Because really prayer is, as we've said over the last couple of weeks, just a, a conversation with God. Now sometimes that conversation looks like talking. Sometimes it looks like making your request to God known. Sometimes it might just mean emptying out all of the anxieties and the to-do lists and the unsolved problems that rattle around through your brain. Sometimes it's lobbying grievances, frustrations, hurt and pain that you're carrying and experiencing in your life to God. And then other times, it's just about showing up and just listening, just being in that space and that place and that presence to maybe experience God in some way. Now, it doesn't always look like the clouds parting and the light breaking through and, you know, the dove descending upon your shoulder. That usually doesn't happen to me. I don't know about y'all, but it doesn't always look like that. And so how do we continue to move forward in prayer? Because I think one of the things that, that we wrestle with in prayer is uh, we start to feel defeated in a way. Last week, Allie talked about this kind of childlike spirit that we're supposed to adopt when we come to prayer, the ways that kids just naturally, innately uh, trust in God and then just ask for what they need. Um, and so today we're going to talk about kind of the antithesis to a childlike spirit. And I think probably for most of the adults here today, this is kind of the spirit that we often carry when it comes to prayer and when it comes to our faith. And I think it's kind of the single greatest obstacle 
to an active prayer life. And that's the spirit of cynicism. You see, there's this cynicism that we carry with us that kind of forms a wall and a barrier to our prayer life. We look around the world and we see all of the problems in it. We see all of the ways that life doesn't match kind of what we hoped it would be, our expectations. We try to pray and it doesn't seem to work or doesn't seem to impact any change. And over time, we kind of experience like kind of this weariness and then this skepticism. And ultimately, it can kind of lead to this pervasive sense of cynicism that we carry that kind of distances us from God. And we're like, well, there's no point in praying because it doesn't do any good. And I want to talk about that a little bit this morning and where that comes from. Because really, cynicism at its core starts with a kind of optimism. It's, it's actually the root of cynicism is this naive optimism. And so there's this kind of progression that we go through on this path and journey towards cynicism. Because of any culture and of any group of people, kind of in Western civilization in the 21st century, we are the most optimistic people. We kind of look at the evidence and everything for the last couple hundred years seems to be in large part up and to the right. But what's happened is kind of this belief that life is always going to improve, that life is always going to get better, that was originally probably founded in some Judeo-Christian belief of God's goodness, shifted probably about the 19th century, not to a trust and a belief in God's goodness, but to an innate belief and trust in humanity's goodness, in our own goodness, that life's just going to work out, kind of Western progress, manifest destiny, all of these ideas, this kind of humanitism movement that like people are just innately good. And so it's, the issue really starts with too much trust, too much optimism in the wrong things. Because when you believe that people are innately good and always going to be good, and then you come into contact with and experience the ways that people fall short, that they make mistakes, that they're prone to sin and to get things wrong, and you come up against evil in all of its different forms, you start to become discouraged. This can happen on an individual basis. This can happen in a relationship where you put a lot of trust and faith in a person. They betrayed you. They lied to you. They cheated you. They manipulated you in some way. And it starts to impact your ability to trust. It starts to impact your ability to rely on kind of the innate, the inherent goodness. This can happen on an individual level. It can also happen on kind of a societal level, on a cultural level. And this is what we see happening, especially for those of us who kind of self-identify as intelligent people. We, we kind of see the ways that everything doesn't work out the way that people assume that it's going to. We kind of look at people and we kind of dismiss or we kind of poke fun at their kind of naive optimism, the ways that kind of they have this Pollyanna-ish view of the world. And we go, like, that's not how life really works. And there's this air of superiority in it. Because, like, well, we know how things really happen. And so it leads to this place over time, though, where we're constantly, you know, confronted with all of the ways that things don't work out the way that we're told that they're going to. And it leads us to this place of kind of a defeated weariness. We're just tired of being confronted by the truth of kind of, like, people's true character. Or people kind of show their true colors. Or the world we kind of lose we lose trust in and we become distrustful of institutions and organizations and corporations. And then inevitably, it feels like the list of people that we can't actually count on gets longer and longer 
and longer. Well, the same thing happens in our relationship with God as we place all of our trust in all of these other things. We start to experience the way that the world really is and all of the problems and challenges and issues that we experience. Our for-profit media companies do a really good job making sure that we're aware of all of the problems in the world. And we start to have a hard time reconciling how the world can look the way that it does and the presence of a God that we can trust in, even though we stopped placing our trust in God long ago and we place it on the inherent goodness of humanity, which leads us inevitably over time to this spirit of cynicism. Now, what cynicism really is, is an awareness that things aren't what they seem or someone isn't what they seem. In fact, it kind of works like this mask. Cynicism identifies that everyone, everything, every organization, trends and culture all have this mask on. And there is something on the other side of the mask. There's a reality behind the facade or the front that they're presenting to the world that is actually going on. There's always an angle. There's always kind of a con happening. Nobody is ever fully truthful, fully honest, fully good. There's this mask that is inherent in everything in life. And cynics are smart enough, so they think, to identify what's really happening. They see through all of the masks that exist in the world. They see what's actually happening, what's actually going on. They can see through everything and everyone. But it's kind of like a double-edged sword, cynicism. Because while you're able to oftentimes identify and see what's really going on, when you can see through everything and everyone, you eventually get to a place where if you can see through everything, you don't see anything. And so it leads to this place where cynicism can actually paralyze us because we're able to identify all of the cons and all of the ways that things aren't truthful. But because we can't trust anything or anyone, we disengage from the world. Now think about in your own life, people who are the most cynical in your life, the ones that you know seem to be the most cynical. They're the most distant from life as well. They're not actually committed to anything. They're not actually engaged in anything of substance or value because they can't trust that anything is what it says that it's going to be. You see, inherent in intimacy, in relationship with a person or a group of people or anything in the world is proximity. But cynicism creates distance. It builds this wall between us and the things around us because we can't actually trust it. We see evidence of this kind of in this original story of humanity. So this idea of cynicism is not a new problem. It's what humanity has been wrestling with for thousands of years. So this comes to us out of Genesis 3. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God made. He said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, this is what happens here in this story that maybe we're familiar with of Adam and Eve. God puts Adam and Eve in the garden. He gives them some commands. And then this serpent shows up and begins to cast doubt, spread seeds of distrust to Eve. And he says, listen, did God, did God really say that? Is that what God actually meant? Or perhaps is there some facade 
Is there something else going on that God's not telling you about? Is there something bigger happening that God's not letting you know about? Perhaps you need to be a little skeptical. Perhaps you should be a little cynical. Perhaps you should be distrustful. And so cynicism, which is rooted in distrust of what really is, starts to build a wedge between humanity and God. And this is what happens next. And so the woman says to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it or you shall die. Well, this is what God told me. And then here's where the serpent kind of finishes the job. He says, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, here's the deal. God's not... God's not being honest with you. There's actually a reason why God doesn't want you to eat of the tree in the middle of the garden. It's not because something bad's going to happen to you. It's actually the opposite. There's this facade that God has presented that I'm helping you see through. What's really going on is God doesn't want you to be like God because he knows that if you eat of this fruit, then you'll know good and evil like God does. You can't trust God that God's being honest with you. Let me help you see through what's really going on. There's a kind of an interesting translation kind of in the next verse when it talks about Adam and Eve eating the fruit and then their eyes were opened. One translation says they ate of it and then saw what was really happening. It's this idea inherent in cynicism that there's something more to the story than you're being let in on. Now, inevitably what happens is as they eat it, there's some consequences, and they realize that they're naked. And what cynicism does is it reveals the duplicity in things. So the serpent tells Adam and Eve that God is being duplicitous with them. There's what God presents, and then there's what's really happening. But what cynicism does is it also masks the way that our own lives are duplicitous. What happens is Adam and Eve, they eat, they realize they're naked, and what, what happens is when they realize that they're naked, that they then go into hiding. There's a version of themselves that they want to present to the world, but then there's this real version that they hide from the world. Remember how cynicism creates this distance? It's a barrier to intimacy. This is what happens in this relationship between God and humanity. As they become cynical, they start to distance themselves from God. They start to hide from God. They start to separate from God, and God goes out looking for them. This is this place I think that many of us are at we're distrustful of God. We think that there's more to the story than we're being let in on, and we're always trying to find ways to see through it. Now think about the way that this impacts our prayer life. For many of us, if we're kind of confronted with cynicism, I'll leave that for the band right there. There you go, Irfan. Yeah. In our prayer life, if we're confronted with cynicism, what inclination would we have to pray? It creates a distance in our relationship with God. If prayer is all about connection, it's all about intimacy, it's all about conversation, if we don't actually trust the person that we're in a relationship with, how honest are we going to be in our prayer life? Or maybe the cynicism has kind of led to this kind of innate superiority because we kind of, kind of see kind of the con that's happening and everything around us, and we're like, well, there's no point praying because it doesn't do any good. I pray and actually nothing changes. I can't trust God that God's actually going to do something with these prayers. And so when I show up to pray, it 
if I even offer a prayer, it's this very vague surface level prayer that doesn't actually connect to, isn't actually a part of any type of real intimacy that I have with God. Or I just, I don't do it. And I think it's hard in our culture because we live in this culture that's so focused on perfectionism. But inherent in perfectionism is a sense of criticism, of being critical. You can't be perfect unless you identify all of the mistakes and all of the ways that you're imperfect in order to fix them and make them better. Think about all of the different ways our media outlets kind of do this Monday morning kind of quarterbacking, armchair quarterbacking. They tell you all of the ways that the world should be different and all of the people who are at fault for the imperfection in the world. We're obsessed with making sure that we live in the right places and our kids go to the right school and we look a certain way and we have certain jobs because if we can achieve perfection, then we can once again trust in our own inherent goodness. But because none of us can achieve perfection, all we do is spot all of the problems and all of the ways that there's kind of this facade happening in the world. And so it's this vicious cycle. This cynicism leads to distrust, which leads to us kind of chasing perfection, which leads to us creating even more masks that lead to more distrust. And around and around and around we go. So now that you're all bummed out, <laughs> there is hope for us. Because there is a way to move from cynicism to hope. And hope looks very different than naive optimism. And for us today, Jesus offers us a journey, a path out of cynicism, out of defeated weariness because of our awareness of the state of the world, away from a place of naive optimism. We can move through this into a place of hope. And he shows us this in the same passage that I looked at in week one. This is that passage where the disciples ask him, Lord, teach us to pray in Luke 11. So let's jump to that. It says, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. And then he offers a version of the Lord's Prayer. Now, this is a translation that I used that I think does a nice job kind of summarizing and simplifying some of the language of the Lord's Prayer for kind of a modern language and modern audience. So, in response to Lord, teach us to pray, this is what Jesus shares with his disciples, with his followers, that he offers to us. These are the words, when you pray, say these things. Father, reveal who you are. Set the world right. Give us what we need for today. Forgive the hurt we have caused and the hurt that we have endured. And protect us from temptation. Father, reveal who you are. Set the world right. Give us what we need for today. Forgive the hurt we have caused and the hurt we have endured. And protect us from temptation. Now here's the path that Jesus lays out for us in these words, out of cynicism and into a place of hope. The first one is a trust in God's goodness. This is inherent in the language, Father, reveal who you are. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Help us to restore our trust, not in the goodness of humanity, not in the goodness of the world of Western progress, not in the goodness of technological innovation, of human achievement and optimization and performance. Let us not place our trust in any of these things, but let us place our trust in God's goodness. Later on in this passage, 
Jesus kind of gives an analogy of children asking their father for a loaf of bread. He's like, if your children asked you for something, you wouldn't give them a snake or a stone. You wouldn't give them bad gifts. How much more would your, will your father do for you? Jesus is trying to help them understand that their trust shouldn't be in anything other than God's goodness, that God does love you. God does accept you. God does care for you and want good things for you. It's not based on performance or achieving a higher level of perfection. That's why we call it grace. It's this unmerited, undeserved gift of God to each of us because we're God's children. It's the same way that you love your children. It's just a better version of that. You don't love them because of the things that they do. You love them because of inherently who they are. They're yours. That's how God feels. Jesus is trying to help us understand that the way out of cynicism begins by trusting in God's goodness and God's provision over our lives. Now, it doesn't mean that he answers every prayer. It doesn't mean that he gives us whatever we want. If so, we'd probably all be living in very different places and very different house, houses, driving very different cars. That's just kind of how superficial a lot of us are. Or maybe it's just me. Maybe I would be living in a different place in a different house with a different car. But it means that God loves you. And so the next place that Jesus takes us to is not only can we just kind of blindly place our trust in God's goodness, because sometimes that can feel to some of us skeptics and cynics like a bit of naivete. The next step is to acknowledge reality. When he looks at that verse and he says, Father, reveal who you are. Set the world right. Set the world right. It acknowledges all of the ways and the places that the world's broken. I mean, we had evidence of that just yesterday and kind of what was happening in the synagogue here in kind of the larger metroplex. The world is not as it should be. Things are not okay. In some places, things are really broken and need a lot of attention and a lot of work. And we need God and humanity to show up and to step up and to do something about it. It's not just this blind, like, well, it's all going to be okay. It's not this kind of like rainbows, butterflies, and cupcakes. It's not that view of the world. It acknowledges the places where it's hard and where it's broken and it's not as you want it to be. Not just on a macro level, but on an individual and a personal level. We can look in our own lives. We can quickly identify all of the ways and places that our life is not as we want it to be. And part of the way out of cynicism is to begin to acknowledge that. Because it's not this kind of blind, kind of naive optimism that everything's going to be fine. We've just got to hold on and trust that it's all going to get better. That's not how you move out of a place of cynicism. It's about acknowledging that God's good, the world is not perfect. And then in the next place. But there are good things around us. And that's cultivating thankfulness. Lord, give us what we need for today. Provide our daily bread. God, there's a lot of ways and places that the world isn't as we want it to be. And our world isn't as we want it to be. But there are also a lot of things that are good in our lives. And a lot of that is kind of a shift in perspective. It's a shift in mindset. It's a shift in the way that we see the world. There was a kind of a period in my life where I had a gratitude practice where every morning I would journal and kind of take notes and I would like write three to five things that I was grateful for. 
And what ends up happening when you engage in that type of practice, when you begin to cultivate thankfulness in your own life, is you start to see all of the different things that they start to multiply. As, you're, as you kind of attune your eyes to identify the good things in your life, you start to realize that there's a whole lot of goodness in our life. Even in the midst of really terrible circumstances, there's still so much to be thankful for. And so what does it look like to acknowledge the ways that the world and our world isn't as we want it to be, but also to begin to thank God for the goodness that he has already demonstrated in our life, the ways that we have family and loved ones who care for us, people in our lives who are healthy, even if everyone isn't. We have roofs over our head and food and our, our pantries. For most of us, water, food, shelter, Maslow's kind of basic needs has never been a thing we've ever had to worry about in our entire life. It's not true for the rest of the world. This isn't like a finger wagging, like shame on us. But it's like, no, 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 we have to stop and take inventory of all of the things that are good in our life, all of the ways that God has already kind of demonstrated God's goodness. It is easy to focus on the big ones, kind of on the major categories in which we don't have what we want. But oftentimes it comes at the expense of missing out on all that God has already given us that we need. And so the way that we move out of cynicism, kind of using Jesus' words as guidance and instruction, is to one, acknowledge God's goodness, admit kind of the state of the world, reality of things, but also to start identifying and cultivating this attitude of thankfulness. The next is kind of developing a practice of repentance. And it's kind of depending on the faith tradition that you grew up in, this word was always like really strange and foreign or it was like beat over your head like a club. Like you have to repent. And you were kind of in one of those two camps. And if this is kind of your first time hearing this word, it's kind of an, it's about acknowledging, confessing, admitting, and then changing course. About beginning to act and to think and to live differently in response to those things that you're acknowledging, the ways that we don't get it right. So this is in that line, God, kind of forgive us for the hurts that we've endured and the hurts that we've caused. You know, forgive us our sins and those who've sinned against us, our trespasses and those who've trespassed against us. It's acknowledging that we're not perfect. It's acknowledging that there's duplicity in our life, that we present a facade, that we don't always act in the way that we say that we're going to act that in many ways we're hypocrites. It's Jesus' language, remove the plank from your own eye before you remove the splinter from someone else's. It is hard to leave this place of cynicism if we're continuing to kind of put this facade on, if we're continuing to operate in this place of hypocrisy and judgment of others. And so the way out of hypocrisy and judgment is repentance, saying, God, I don't get it right all the time. I make lots of mistakes. I do not treat people the way that I always should. I do not always use kind words. I'm not always patient. I am not always loving. I am not always forgiving. I keep track of wrongs. I hold grudges. God, help me to be more like you. Help me to live into who you've called me to be. As we begin to name these things and confess these things and ask for forgiveness and repent of these things, it helps us to give more grace to everybody else. If we're blind and ignorant to our own duplicity, it's really easy to be judgmental of everybody else's. But when we have a strong habit of repentance in our own life, of acknowledging all of the ways that we are messed up and broken and flawed, it is far easier 
to be more tolerant and more patient and more forgiving when everybody else is too. This is how we move, begin to move out of this place of cynicism. The last piece is we begin to lean in to hope. And this idea of hope is different than optimism or naive optimism. Optimism is grounded in the idea that things are going to get better. Hope is based on the idea that someone is coming to make things better. One is based on the goodness of life, the goodness of humanity, which always disappoints us. The other is based on the goodness of God. Hope is a uniquely religious idea. It's placed on our trust in God's ability to one day make things better. Hopefully soon, not yet, but one day. And that one day isn't in three years or five years. I don't, it's in the end of time. And that's not like a calendar date. That's just the age when we believe Jesus returns. It's kind of this distant kind of abstract concept that one day all things will be healed, will be restored, will be redeemed. In fact, this concept of hope this Christian hope anchored in the goodness of God and the person of Jesus Christ that we hold as Christians is so important to the idea of Christianity that it's among the very last things that are contained in Scripture. So if you flip to the back of your Bible, Revelation chapter 21, this is what the writer of Revelation says. He's talking about a vision that he's seen, this idea of the end of the age when all things will be made, made new and made well this idea, this place, this time that we can hope in. And it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them. This is the same promise that God makes to Abraham in Genesis. This is the bow that ties the whole thing together. This promise that you've been holding out onto, this thing that you've been waiting to see happen, you can hope and trust that it will one day come to pass. He, God, will be, he will wipe every tear from their eye. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. All of the ways that the world isn't as it should will one day end and cease. All of the ways that there's more going on than what we see, all of the opportunities to be cynical will one day disappear because the world will be made as God intended it to be. It will go back to that state that we read about in Genesis with proximity and intimacy and relationship between God and humanity. He will be their God and they will be his people. And it goes on. And the one who is seated on the throne, Jesus, said, see, I am making all things new. Not see, everything's gonna be okay, not see, this was all going to work out in the end. It's not a hope in the inherent goodness of things. It's a hope in a person based on their activity in the world. See, I, Jesus, am making all things new. Cynicism is a reality for all of us in small moments and in big ways. Maybe you're not in the full throes of cynicism in your own life and faith. Maybe you're in that kind of defeated weariness place. Maybe you're on the slide down. But there is a way out. There is a path forward. 
Jesus tells us that we can trust in God's goodness. We don't have to trust in other people. We don't have to trust in humanity or trust in our institutions and our governments and our organizations to solve the problems of the world. We can trust in God's goodness. We can also acknowledge the ways that the world isn't as it should be. We can acknowledge reality and all of the broken places and people that exist within it. But we can also cultivate thankfulness and recognize and realize all of the ways that God is already at work in the world and already at work in our world. We can practice repentance, admitting all of the places and all of the ways that we live kind of a duplicitous lifestyle, the ways that we're not always who we say we are or act in accordance with our values and beliefs. But we can trust and lean into the hope that Jesus is at work and that he is making all things new. He is making us new, and he is continuing to work towards that end. Let me pray for our time together this morning. Gracious God, we thank you for the reminder that you are with us, that you love us, and that you are at work in our life. God, in the ways that we are cynical and hesitant to lean into you, to trust you and to develop a relationship with you, God, we ask that you just remove that. Remove this spirit of cynicism that keeps us from a relationship with you, from the ways that we're often skeptical and unbelieving. God, help us to trust in you and your goodness and to see evidence of it every day of our lives. We pray this in your name. Amen.